Part twenty eight of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Foundation Stone and the Building. Washington, December fourteen. Beginning with the fourth plenary session of the Washington Conference, the registration of results in the Pacific in disarmament in China has begun. They are good results, assembled on a basis of broad principles that may sustain at last an organized permanent peace for the whole world. If there is one thing to be noted more than another about the work that has led up to this settlement, it is the adaptability, the intelligent and sympathetic understanding shown by Japan in these transactions. The Japanese seem to be the most flexible-minded of peoples. They win my respect more and more. In the days of imperialistic competition, they stiffened to a conscientious selfishness and a splendid fighting energy. Now that a new spirit of discussion, compromise, and the desire for brotherhood spreads about the world, they catch the new note and they sound it with obvious sincerity and good will. No people has been under such keen and suspicious observation here as the Japanese. The idea of them as of a people insanely patriotic, patriotically subtle and treacherous, mysterious and mentally inaccessible, has been largely dispelled. I myself have tried that view over in my mind and dismissed it, and multitudes of the commonplace men have gone through the same experience here. Our Western world, I am convinced, can work with the Japanese and understand and trust them. It will be for other and abler pens to record the detailed working out of the results of this great conference, this new experiment in human reasonableness, as far as it affects Shantung and Yap and Hong Kong and Port Arthur and so forth. My time in Washington is drawing to an end, and I will confine myself now rather to that broader and vaguer question in which I am more interested the question of what lies behind and beyond this most successful and hopeful beginning in open international cooperation. Great and important as the conference is, the growth of a real and understandable project for the steady, systematic development of an effective international world peace, which has been going on in men's minds here and in the world generally in the last two months, is a much greater thing. It is a quite amazing mental growth, something very quiet and simple and yet astonishing, like a clear crystallization out of a turbid solution. Before the conference gathered, civilized people throughout the world were, I think, quite confused about how the peace of the world could ever be organized, and rather hopeless about its being done. Now I think there is a widespread and spreading unanimity that there is a way, a practicable way, and a hopeful way, by successive conferences, by widening peace agreements, by the establishment of permanent joint commissions, by systematic education, and the sedulous cultivation of confidence, along which humanity may struggle, and will struggle, out of its present miseries and dangers, toward the dawn of a new life. The next conferences that are indicated will gather in a mood of hopefulness and experience that will be the most precious legacy of the present conference. One that must follow very soon must deal with the economic rehabilitation of Europe. Here, it seems to me, America, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and Russia at least must meet, and soon. 
in the Christmas mood, in the phase of relief that radiates from Washington and Ireland now, we must not let our elation blind us to the fact that, for all the light that breaks in upon us, we are not yet out of the woods. Millions are starving today, great masses of men degenerate physically and morally in unemployment, European industrialism crawls and staggers still. We have laid the foundations of a new era, but the building has scarcely begun. And in addition to the World Economic Conference, there is also need of another conference to face the still more difficult task of military disarmament and the re-examination of the factors of conflict in the Afro-European area. Personally, I want to see America in that conference also, because I do recognize that the freshness of mind, the deliberate diplomatic inexperience of America, is a factor of priceless value in these discussions. I would like to see that conference also held in an American atmosphere and before an American audience, if only for the sake of Europe. And if America can be interested in Kwong Tung, I don't see why America should not also be interested in Silesia or Silesia or Senegal or the Congo, which are all very much nearer. The appetite for conferences, the belief in conferences, will grow with what it feeds upon. One sees these gatherings, with their accessory commissions, permanent secretariats, and increasing world services, becoming a customary and necessary peace control of the earth. And the peace control, growing in this natural fashion, will consist always and solely of the efficient and willing nations of the world. There will be no forced conclusions, and no premature admission of incompetent and feeble peoples. The pedantry that would give every sovereign power, however little or rotten, a vote, a nice saleable vote, in the management of the world's affairs, will play no part in this evolution. The association of nations will be a growing brotherhood of strong and healthy and understanding peoples, bound only by a bond of self-denial and mutual restraint toward the weaker folk of the earth. The cooperation of the English-speaking peoples, and particularly the American will for peace, must needs play a very conspicuous part in the crystallization of this association, and so it is inevitable that a certain sort of international expert will be screaming that the world is threatened by an Anglo-American imperialism. It may be worth while to say a word or so to dispel this idea. Let us bear in mind that the Washington Conference, whose result may be the cornerstone of the organized peace of the world, is a conference of withdrawal and abstinence, self-restraint and mutual restraint, with regard to China and the Pacific. Its key idea is the cessation of aggressions upon weaker or less advantageously circumstanced people. If America and her kindred nations are most active in pressing for such results, it is not that they are moved by any thoughts of world predominance, but by liberal ideas that are the monopoly of no race and people. It is their fortunate lot to have been most accessible to such ideas, and to be able now to play the leading, most powerful part in establishing them in the world. But these ideas have a broader basis, and claim a wider allegiance than merely that of the English-speaking peoples. Liberalism, the idea of great nations of free citizens held together by bonds of mutual confidence, roots very wide and deep in humanity. 
It derives from the great traditions of the Greek and Roman republics, and from the traditions of freedom of the Scandinavian and Teutonic peoples. The America of today did not grow from American seed. Let America bear that in mind. The American idea is the embodiment particularly of the liberal thought of England and France in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. France cannot destroy the greatness of her past or the greatness of her future by a phase of momentary folly with her submarines and Senegalese, her Polish ally, and all the rest of it. All peoples have such lapses. A few years ago Britain was disgusting with her jingoistic imperialism. Let us forget our lapses and get back to our more enduring selves. Latin America, quite as much as English-speaking America, belongs to that great tradition of Franco-British liberalism. Liberal Germany in 1848, and again today, struggles to take its fitting place among the emancipated peoples, as Italy did half a century ago. These are the peoples who can best understand now and help now. They are all in our system of ideas. They can be brought together into one purpose. It is natural and necessary that the peoples most saturated in that great tradition of European liberalism should be the first full members of the coming association, and should be prepared to lead the rest of the world toward the new order. All peoples are not equally prepared. It is not a question of ascendancy. It is a question of those who are able doing the task that they alone are prepared to perform. When I think of an association of nations, I think, therefore, of a sort of club or brotherhood, not of every state in the world, but of the peoples who speak English, French, German, Spanish, Italian, and Japanese, as the big brotherhood of the world, with such states as Holland and Norway and Bohemia, and so forth, great in quality if not great in power, and entirely sympathetic by training and tradition, associated with them in a great bond for two ends, for peace among themselves, and for restraint and patience toward the rest of mankind. I think of such a brotherhood as the brain and backbone of the organized peace of the world, and I cannot see how it is possible to take in the other peoples of the world as helpers until they respond to the same ideals. I think first of a recovered Russia, and then of a unified and educated China, and a freed and reconstructed India, and of many other states, which can claim to be of a civilized quality, such as Egypt, gradually winning their way from a non-participating to a participating level. The relationship of China to Japan, in a developing association of nations, will be something rather analogous to the relationship of a territory to a state, in the Constitution of the United States of America. Unless there is a strong, well-organized collective mentality in a nation or state, I do not see how there can be anything but a sham representation of it upon an association of nations, nor how it can be anything but a responsibility and weakness to such an association. And outside the system of participating states, and non-participating states, there are great regions of the earth, tropical Africa is the most typical case, which must necessarily have a sort of order imposed upon them from without, and for which a joint control by interested associated nations is probably the best method of government at the present time. That, I think, 
is the vision of the political future of mankind that is opening out before us a great system of associated states locked and interlocked together by fourfold and sixfold and tenfold treaties open treaties of peace and cooperation ruling jointly the still barbaric regions of the earth and pledged to respect and to keep and at last to welcome to their own ranks the now politically enfeebled regions of old civilization such an association must necessarily supersede the empires of the nineteenth century and put an end forever to the imperialistic idea of such an association the fourfold treaty may be the foundation stone and within the security of such an edifice of peace mankind will be able to go on to achievements such as we at present can scarcely imagine end of part twenty eight